In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today, and we thank you for bringing us together again to share our understanding of the book of Revelation. Help us then to open our minds and our hearts to truly understand what, what it is you're saying, you're saying to us through Holy Scripture. Give us the strength and the grace to set aside preconceived notions or other ideas and concepts so that we can hear what you really want us to hear. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Is this getting through to you clear? Is this... You can hear I'd like to start out our class this morning by asking you, how many of you have been reading uh, at least a small portion of the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel? Ah, I see a lot of you have not. Eh? Mm -hmm. Well, it's really important that, that you do to get a, a different viewpoint really of the same things. Much of, much of what is expressed in the book of Revelation has already, in many ways, been expressed in many of the other books of the Old Testament, but particularly in Ezekiel and the book of Daniel. In fact, a lot of the, the things in Revelation are almost copied word for word out of Daniel. Uh, and there are some beautiful prayers in Daniel as well. Ezekiel is a little weird, I have to admit. Uh, uh, but uh, I think both of them have a great deal to say. Uh, it might, you know, just be repetitious, but nevertheless, it gives you an idea of Revelation again, and I'll have to say this over and over, Revelation is not really telling you anything new that hasn't been already made known uh, through other books of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Somehow I'm getting a ring sound up here. <coughs> Let's see if that's any better. <coughs> Are there any burning questions that you have regarding some of the uh, past lessons that we've talked about? Um, anything of the past before we get into the mysterious subjects of today? Okay, I just assume that you all understand it very well. <laughs> Today we're going to cover four main subjects, and I've listed them up here on the board. Um, the one thing I want to uh, kind of give you an idea is that you may have already noticed this. I'm approaching this more or less in a different way than has been taught before. 
simply because I feel after reading, you know, those ten books we had up here, well, I've read most of that, uh, except for that one that was 750 pages long. <clears throat> but some of those books get so hung up in the minute details. And then I would step back and say, well, now, how does that pertain to us today? A lot of it didn't, okay? Let me give you an example. <clears throat> right in chapter 4 here, where it shows the vision uh, of heaven and the vision of the uh, one who presumably is God the Father, all right? And he's talking about, he's dressed uh, like jasmine and carnelian and so forth. So I thought, all right, now what does that mean to us today? And it doesn't really mean anything. Because jasmine and carnelian, and, and I'm just giving you this as an example of some of the, the minutiae that is in here that I don't want to get involved in, because I don't think it's important. Jasmine and carnelian were precious, uh, semi-precious stones that were supposed to be in the garments of the high priest. Uh, as a uh, symbol of authority, all right? <clears throat> and that's nice and all of that, but that doesn't mean anything to us today. And it doesn't help us to get to the basic message of what is being taught here. So if you see me skipping over some of the details, it is simply because... I don't feel that they're important to us today. They were important to the people at the time that this was written because you have to kind of realize that the people in the first century weren't distracted with all of the things that we are distracted with today or that we are confronted with today. <clears throat> in fact, they led an extremely simple life there weren't a lot of books. You couldn't go down to uh, Borders or Barnes & Noble or Walmart and, and buy a book, you know, for a few bucks. Uh, not only because they didn't have the few bucks, but because there weren't books like that available for the masses. And so they were not... Uh, they were more interested in all the minute details that did come their way because each one of them had some significance that was important to them for that period of time. But it isn't that important for us today. So I want to uh, continually bring home what the message is because we today are so distracted by so much uh, that we have a tendency to say, well, I don't have time for God. I've got to see my iPad, you know, and I've got to be connected uh, to all of these programs on television or this sports program or, you know, the Wall Street Journal or whatever. And that's not where life is. That is just not where it, it all is. <clears throat> I'd like to, just to emphasize this, I want to read just a little bit out of the commentary for this little book that I've 
been using, which I think is very good. It says, Revelation wants us to understand that the same divine judgment and guidance that were manifest in those past events, that is, of the Old Testament, are at work today. This is written, you know, not too many years ago. Not that those past events have to be repeated in the same way. When apocalypse is, that's a very hard word to say, when apocalypse, that is this type of literature, uh, come to describe the future events of judgment and salvation, they often move away from any connection to historical events and speak in the language of mythological symbols and metaphors. And as we go further, particularly <clears throat> when we get into the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, there's going to be a lot of mythology embedded in that, which is not necessary for us to understand all the, all the background and details. I'll give, the, give you some of it so you know where it came from. But I think what we've got to constantly look at is the message of this book itself rather than all of the spooky details. Okay. All right. Any questions so far? Okay. All right. Let's get into chapter four. Chapter four is a short chapter. It stands pretty much by itself. But nevertheless, it's important because as we go forward, it will refer back to some of this. So, <clears throat> after this, I had a vision after this. In other words, the writer John, again, is reiterating now in writing uh, what he saw in visions of the past or in the past uh, three chapters. After this, I had a vision of an open door to heaven, and I heard the trumpet-like voice that had spoken to me before, and that was Christ, saying, come up here, and I will show you what must happen afterwards. At once I was caught up in spirit. So, again, we are not certain whether these are actual visions where he's seeing something, or whether these are inspirations. I really don't feel that it makes any difference as to which one. What we have to look at again is what is he telling us. Okay. <clears throat> at once I was caught up in the spirit. A throne was there in heaven. Well, you would kind of expect that, wouldn't you? And on the throne sat one whose appearance sparkled like jasmine and carnelian, as I just mentioned. Around the throne was a halo as brilliant as emerald. Uh, surrounding the throne, I saw 24 other thrones on which 24 elders sat, dressed in white garments and with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, <coughs> rumblings and peal of thunder. Seven flaming torches burned in front of the throne, which are the spirits of God. Now I want to stop and go back and talk a little bit about some of this here. Obviously, we are seeing through the eyes of John uh, a vision of 
God the Father, right? And I'll explain how I know it's God the Father because it explains something as we go along here. Uh, remember, God is a pure spirit. So there is no appearance as we would see ourselves. If you look in the mirror, obviously you know what to expect, and that's what's there. Sometimes you go, <laughs> But nevertheless, like I always say in the morning after I threw shaving and so forth, I said, well, Lord, that's as good as I can do with what you gave me to work with. <laughs> but this is God the Father. It is John's way of expressing in human terms what could not really be expressed in divine or heavenly terms. It's the best he could do. All right. When we get to the 24 elders, now, everybody is jumping to conclusions that these are the 12 sons of Jacob and the 12 apostles, right? Hmm. Not really. Yeah. Remember, I said last week that the number 12 represents full fullness? All right. <clears throat> yes, in some ways we might say that the 12... Uh, or the 24 elders, represented the 12 tribes of Jacob and the 12 apostles, but not so much the individuals, because a couple of those uh, sons of Jacob weren't the best, okay? And remember that when the when the Israelites came over into the promised land after wandering in the desert for 40 years under the role of leadership of Joshua, they were uh, separated again by tribes and each given a territory. But remember, Joseph and Levi did not get territory. Levi was a priest and was given the assignment of being the priest and his family and descendants of his family would be the priest that would live among all of the other tribes. Joseph did not get a portion of land because he married an Egyptian woman, <clears throat> which was a big no-no at that time. But he had two sons, Ephraim and uh, Manasseh, right. So they received. So the 12 tribes were really uh, not the original 12 sons of Jacob. Okay. And the 12 tribes of Jacob in that whole history disappeared in the 6th century uh, at the Babylonian captivity. And after the activity, activity or the captivity was over, and the return to Israel, uh, that did not continue. So for 500 years or so, the whole idea of the tribes of Jacob had fallen apart, and by the time of Christ, was pretty much gone. Okay. Now, 
in the apostles, we had one, you know, Judas, who was the traitor, so I'm not so sure we would want to include him as part of the Twelve, would we? Of course, he was replaced later, uh, but that's beside the point. The idea of the 24 elders represents the fullness of Judaism and Christianity. Now, if I put those uh, five, uh, whether it's ten books, back here and we went in there, you'd probably find ten different other reasons uh, as well. But no, the 24 elders represent the fullness of Judaism and Christianity because if you think about it, Judaism and Christianity are the only faiths over the last 2,000 years that express a belief in one true God. All of the other faiths uh, have all kinds of other beliefs, and many of them, particularly the Orientals, uh, there's no belief in a given divine God. <clears throat> so, well, the <clears throat> 24 elders represent the fullness of Judaism and Christianity represented by God, the Father. Does that make sense? You're not so sure, I take it. Let's let's go on. Yeah. Well, the question was, what about the Muslim faith? Do they believe in one God? It is not clear, just put it that way. And I don't think they have a clear understanding of that either. They are more beholden to Mohammed, who was not a God. You know, he was a human being. Uh, they do have many of the basic truths of Judaism, and some of Christianity, particularly Mary, uh, but they don't have uh, any creed that resembles a belief in one true God. Yeah, but they don't have any idea of who that is. Uh, yes, uh, not, well, not Ishmael, so, well, I guess you could say that, yeah, 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 right, be careful now, you're getting into, I have right, okay, yes, they claim their origin from Abraham, right, not from God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let us go on. <clears throat> In the center around the throne were four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back. Ooh. The first creature resembled a lion and the second was like a calf and the third had a face like that of human being. 
and the fourth looked like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, were covered with eyes inside and out. Well, all right, the four living creatures, if you read Ezekiel and Daniel, you would know already that the four living creatures represents the four elements, the main elements of creation, which is earth, fire, water, and what? Wind, yes. Wind or air. I always say wind because in a way it works better. Yes. Earth, fire, water, and air or wind. No. And you'll see this uh, repeated several times in different ways, but with the same uh, meaning. The whole idea of the the creatures having uh, six wings uh, were covered with eyes inside and out. Again, represents the idea that this represents, these four items represent all of creation. All, again, like the seven, and that will be part of the seven seals as well as the seven uh, uh, trumpets. Okay. Day and night, they do not stop claiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And that is a, a theophany that is often used throughout Revelation as well as Ezekiel and Daniel. And where else do we hear that? Right in the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer in our own Mass. All right, that's where it comes from, right out of the book of Revelation. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one who sits on the throne and worships him, who lives forever and ever. They throw down their thrones before the they throw, they throw down their crowns, excuse me, before the throne exclaiming, Worthy to you, Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. Because of your will, they came to be and were created. So this, in essence, is just a vision of God the Father who is the creator of all things, including Judaism and Christianity. And we'll get more into that aspect of the detail uh, later. Yes, Jen? Let's move on to the scroll and the lamb. I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. God the Father. It had writing on both sides and was sealed with seven seals. 
and this uh, this is a detail that you should at least understand. Why did it have writing on both sides in this time frame when people would write on parchment? You could only write on one side because a lot of the times the ink would bleed through. And also in parchment, you only had one smooth side. The other side had the reeds and so forth uh, from the material that it would be derived from, which is flex. <coughs> Excuse me, or animal skin. Okay. So the idea of writing on both sides in this, which is something in most cases they did not do, implies that it was everything that was needed to convey the message that is in the scroll. Again, all or complete. Then I saw a mighty angel who proclaimed in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to examine it. I shed many tears because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to examine it. And one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. And I'm going to stop there before we get into what he said. The scroll. Anybody know what the scroll contained? Now you're supposed to have read all of this. You're supposed to. God's plan of salvation. Yes. God's plan of salvation. Yes, that's exactly what it should be. I've heard it referred to as God's plan of redemption, which really is the same thing. All right. God's plan of salvation. I gave you uh, that diagram from the past. Many people have had it. This one here. Okay. And on the far, on the other side of that is sort of a narrative explanation of what God's plan of salvation is. Okay. But it is a way that God, from the very beginning, even mentioned right in the scenes of Adam and Eve, God had a plan to bring sinful mankind back into heaven with him, provided that we, mankind, lived according to the teachings of Christ and the Father that are contained in the overall plan of salvation. <clears throat> Many people don't believe that or don't understand that. I've often heard people say, oh, well, God is all loving and so good, he'd never condemn anybody. And that's right. But mankind, by their own volition, reject who reject Christ or ignore Christ or ignore his word, that is the scripture, condemn themselves. And over and over and over, this book, as well as Ezekiel and Daniel, will say that, yes, 
God is all loving, but there are limits. And he is not going to bring people into heaven who totally ignored him or rejected him or rejected his son Christ. So those limits apply. And you know, it's interesting if you read any of the uh, lives of the saints who had revelations or visions of Christ. I'm thinking right now of uh, Faustina, St. Faustina, or Kowalska, the uh, originator of the Divine Mercy movement, uh, Father P uh, Padre Peel, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, uh, St. Teresa of Lisieux. So many of the saints that have had visions, there was no funny business in any of them. God does not joke around. God does not play games with mankind. Everything is a loving way, but a serious way. And so when he says in Matthew and Mark's gospel, uh, the parable of separating the sheep from the goats, you all heard that many, many times, how at the end of the world, uh, they're going to go through and separate the, the sheep from the goats, meaning the, those who, uh, were loyal and accepted Christ in his teachings and those who rejected. Uh, there is only one way to go, and that is the way of Christ, because the other way is total damnation. Now, when I say total damnation, forget about the, the guy with the pitchfork and the long tail and, you know, that kind of stuff. Total damnation can be as simple as having seen the beatific vision of God when we first die and we go through what is called a particular judgment, but being told you'll never see that again and never be able to join God again with nothing else happening, but the anxiety of knowing that is hell itself. Sad, but true. Okay. <clears throat> so, again, the scroll is God's plan of salvation. Now it says, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to examine it. And I shed many tears because no one was found worthy to open it. <clears throat> one of the elders said to me, do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Who is that? Jesus. Why do we call it the tribe of Judah? Because Judah was the tribe or the descendant um, or of David and, of course, of Jesus Christ. Yeah. The root of David has triumphed, enabling him, that is Christ, 
to open the scroll and its seven seals. All right. Now, why was Jesus Christ the only one? Because remember, the whole idea of God's plan of salvation required a divine sacrifice. Sacrifice was very important at this time. And in any covenant, there was always a need for sacrifice with blood. And no, nothing that mankind had would be good enough, pure enough, holy enough to be offered back to the Father for the forgiveness of sins of all mankind. And therefore, God himself had to give mankind something that was pure, holy, and divine to be sacrificed back and given back to the Father for the sake of redeeming all mankind. And therefore, Jesus Christ, God himself, had to come and in the form of man and the reason he had to come in the form of man is because he had to take upon himself the sins of all humanity. And when he was here on earth, the first 30 years, he set aside his divinity and had to experience all the things that human beings have to experience, including being born from a woman and growing up uh, learning everything the way we do because he represented men, mankind. And he had to experience all of that in order to offer it back with his divine body and blood, his divine being to the Father. That is what it's referencing here. No one was able to open, no one was able to fulfill the requirement of God's plan of salvation except God himself in the form of Jesus Christ. And if you go to John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16, it will tell you that God loved the world so much that he gave us his only begotten son that we might have life that is eternal life and have it abundantly. <clears throat> then I saw standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures the, and the elders a lamb that seemed to have been slain seemed to have been, but was alive. He had seven horns and seven eyes. These are the seven spirits of God sent out into this whole world. He had seven horns and seven eyes. Horns are power. Eyes are understanding and knowledge. He had all power and knowledge. You gotta constantly, when you read the word seven, you gotta constantly think of all or complete. Okay? So, uh, this lamb representing Jesus Christ, and why the lamb? 
Anyone? The lamb came from the whole idea of, remember Moses at the time of the original Passover was instructed by God to slay a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and post it on the doorpost and so forth for the lintel of the Israelite houses. All right. Because that was a sign of the uh, home of a uh, Jewish person at the time. And it would be passed over that house that is the angel of death. Okay. So the whole idea of the lamb. And the lamb became an annual symbol of that sacrifice that was offered at that particular time in Jewish households. And today in the Orthodox, the Orthodox Jewish household, uh, lamb is still used in the conservative and the reform. I think it goes to Turkey now, you know, or, or some other. Not pork, not pork, uh-uh. Uh, but nevertheless, okay. But that's where the idea of the lamb came from. So lamb has always been a symbol of sacrifice and offering. <clears throat> he came, that is, the, the lamb. He came and received the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne, from the Father. When he took it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each of the elders held a harp with gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the holy ones. That'll come up again. The bowls represent, in this particular case, incense, which are the prayers of the faithful. They sang a new hymn. Worthy are you to receive the scroll and to break open its seals. For you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God those for from whom every tribe, uh, tongue, people, and nation. You see, right there, it is not limited to Jewish people only. Very important to understand. It is not limited to just Jews. It is everyone who is faithful to the Lamb. You made them a kingdom and priest for our God, and they will reign on earth, meaning the resurrection of the body. I looked again and heard the voices of many angels who surrounded the throne and the living creatures of the elders. They were countless in number and were cried out in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom and strength, honor and glory, and blessings. Then I watched while the Lamb broke open the first of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures cry out in a voice like thunder, Come forward! And I looked, and there was a white horse, and its rider, and a bow. He was given a crown, and he rode forth victorious, to further his victories, 
And when he broke open the sea, interestingly enough, that's all it says about that first seal. Nothing else is said. Now, what is the representative or what's the white horse? In one of those details that I don't think is really that important, uh, it really refers to the enemy of the Romans. And this is really kind of a far stretch, I think. But nevertheless, this is what most of the books will say. The enemy of the Romans, that is the Roman Empire at this time, was the Parthians. And they happened to uh, have some kind of appreciation for white horses. And the Parthians were Rome, the Roman Empire's constant enemy from the northeast. All right, sort of the area of Mesopotamia or uh, the upper Mideast as we would call it today. Used to be called Asia Minor years ago. Okay. But I don't think that's really important. And their uh, weapon was the bow and arrow. So that's why you have a white horse representing, and this is supposed to be a message of hope. Well, well, it's kind of a stretch to get there. But nevertheless, uh, so the first seal really just talks about a white horse. It has virtually nothing else in it. Okay. When he broke open the second seal, I heard the second living creature cry out, Come forward. Another horse came out, a red one. Its rider was given power to take peace away from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. And he was given a huge sword. I, well, that is kind of a real stretch there. Again, we have no idea except the red horse represents fire. Remember the four elements? All right. Four elements, this would be representing fire. Okay. When he broke open the third seal, I heard the third living creature cry out, Come forward. And I looked, and there was Black Horse. And his rider held a scale in his hand. I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, and it said, A ration of wheat costs a day's pay. And three days' rations of barley cost a day's pay. But do not damage the oak, or the olive oil, or the wine. Well, what does all that mean? All right. Well, actually, one of the plagues uh, that we'll be dealing with <coughs> is uh, famine. If you had a fire in the second horse, you would have a great deal of famine in this country, and that is what it represents. But it really doesn't tell you a lot. And again, as we'll sum up with the end of uh, the seals here, you'll see uh, hopefully what I mean. When he broke open the fourth seal, I heard the voice uh, of the four living creatures 
uh, cry out, come forward. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Yuck. Its rider was named Death, and Hades accompanied him. They were given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill uh, with sword, famine, and plague by means of the beast of the earth. Well, actually, that's what happened in the first, second, and third was um, was uh, death, famine, and plague, right? and fire. That's right. Uh, so you would have a death. Now, it says it was given authority it doesn't necessarily mean that authority was carried out. Does that make sense? All right. It was given, and all of these, all of these uh, were given certain authorities, but none of them were actually carried out. When he broke open the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of, of the witness they bore to the world <coughs> to the word of God. They cried out in a loud voice, How long will it be, holy and true master, before you sit in judgment and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? These are the faithful people who died before the end of the world and still had uh, either, you know, we would call this purgatory. They had not reached heaven yet. And they were told to wait a little while longer because certain conditions have not happened. One of those conditions had to be the death and resurrection of Christ. But by the time this book was written, that had already happened. But to people of the Old Testament who did not understand or know or had the advantage of the New Testament yet, remember it didn't really come out till towards the end of the first century, uh, they would not have known all of the the details. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So the fifth seal again was the faithful departed. Right. I think we mentioned that last week a little. <clears throat> And then I watched while he broke open the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake. The sun turned as black and dark as sackcloth. And the whole moon became like blood. The stars in the sky fell to the earth like unripened figs. Shaken loose from a tree in a strong wind. We had some of that around here recently. <laughs> then the sky was divided like a torn scroll, curling up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. The kings of the earth, the nobles and military officers, the rich and powerful, 
and every slave and free person hid themselves in caves and among mountain crags. They cried out, <coughs> excuse me, they cried out among, um, they cried out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Um, and from the face of the one who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? This, in a way, is a sign of the end of the earth. There is a similar uh, wording of the rocks and uh, mountains crying and uh, the people calling out because they wanted to die and they couldn't. All right, you have that uh, in Ezekiel and you have it in Mark's Gospel, I believe. Uh, people crying out because they want to die because they see all of this happening and yet they cannot die. They say, uh, may the mountains and the rocks and hills fall on us to be buried. They want something to end their life and yet it does not happen. Uh, so at the end, well, we haven't gotten to seventh yet and that will come a little later. In apocalyptic writing, you will have overlapping. You'll have certain events happening and not quite cresting and falling, but then you have another wave starting before the first one ends. You'll have that in all three of these, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And that is just part of the style of apocalyptic writing. It's not that they're trying to deliberately get you all confused. Today, in today's writing, you would not have such a thing. But that was very common uh, for the last couple of centuries before Christ and for a couple of centuries afterwards. And then it sort of died out. Except that in science fiction writing today, you have similar kinds of stuff. And this really isn't much different than science fiction writing. Okay. So you have to kind of go along with it and then look back to see what does it really say, what does it, is it really mean. So we haven't covered the seventh seal yet, but we will get to that before we end today's meeting. Are you getting to understand this? Does it mean something to you? Any, any questions? Yes, Jim. Yeah, I, I find the very last thing you read interesting, the fact that even though they realize who's casting judgment on them, it's like, you know, hey, kill us, and they're, they're still not where, you know, still don't have the Spartans to turn around and say, we really ought to worship. And that, That's right. That kind of does speak an awful lot to today, too. That's right. And this book, if I could find it, has a comment along those very same lines. Yeah. Yeah, that in spite of all the evidence, just as Jim said, in spite of all of the evidence, some people still do not get the message, or they refuse to look at it. They take the punishment that is given, and they curse God for the punishment, 
rather than stopping to think, why? Why is this punishment upon us? And what can I do to correct it? And let me digress for a minute. When we are faced with a crisis, sometimes God, it's because God is trying to get us, get our attention. So when we are faced with a crisis, we should stop and pray and ask God, what is this all about? Is there something in this that you are trying to tell me? And if you have a close relationship with God, that should not be an unusual situation. All right? So try it sometimes. When you are faced with a problem, sit down quietly in a place and open your mind and your heart to God because there may be a message for you in the midst of all that turmoil, whatever it might be. I know from personal experience that that can be the case. I'm not saying it always is, but it certainly can be. And God does speak to you in many ways and does give you reassurance in many ways once you start listening to him. Let's move on. The 144,000 sealed. I'm going to be one of those 144 because the rest of you are cut out. So. There are some some Christian, so-called Christian sects or, or beliefs that feel that their group is that 144,000 and everyone else is excluded. No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, just you know, a few minutes ago, I read a passage where there was countless numbers of people from all areas and all faiths, regions, backgrounds, etc., etc. Okay, all right. It says after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds or the four creatures so that no wind could blow on land or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel come up from the east, holding the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were given power to damage the land and the sea. Do not damage the land or the sea or the trees until we put the seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. I heard the number of those who had been marked with the seal. Then he goes through, you know, 12, uh, excuse me, um, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Jacob. Well, that is, again, the 12 is to indicate fullness. As we've said before, the 12 times 12 really is the fullness of all Judaism and Christianity times a thousand, which is an infinite number. An infinite number. So the 144,000 is not a specific number. It is indicative 
uh, 12 times 12 times 1,000, which in Jewish culture would be an infinite quantity. Important to understand, because no one is left out who is faithful to God through Jesus Christ. Okay. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we have to understand that. That is an extremely important and somewhat frightening phrase, particularly for many people who ignore Christ. I've heard so many good people say, well, I don't want to bother with all of that. I don't understand it, and I don't, I just don't want to bother. Um, and how sad that is. How sad that is. Now, you do not have to be, and I don't want anyone to say that old Mel, old Mel, uh, <laughs> said, said that you had to be a Catholic to get into heaven. That is not the case. Okay? You'll have a lot of old priests say that. Uh, but no. Jesus says um, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so faith in Jesus Christ is the key. But faith implies obedience to the teachings of Christ. And that is something a lot of people just don't understand or don't want to understand. And they'll say, oh, well, I, you know, I believe in Christ. I believe, you know, he was a good man and so forth and so on. But do you follow his word? Do you follow his instructions? Well, I don't want to bother with all of that. No. Unfortunately, they're missing out. They come so close and yet so far. So, the seal here. <clears throat> we have sealings today. When you are baptized and when you are uh, confirmed, the bishop will put the sign of the sacrament on your forehead in oil. That is the sealing. Okay? Uh, you have that in many other ways. Uh, in the Second World War, the Jewish people were all tattooed with a number to indicate who they were and in what position or relationship were they, because many were given special jobs. If you read uh, Schindler's List, the book uh, about a man named Schindler who uh, made excuses for a lot of Jewish people uh, as a way of trying to save them. And it was a very interesting book and it was a very interesting movie. Uh, but they were all sealed as well. And throughout history, mankind has been sealed in, a, in many, many ways. Even animals were branded uh, to indicate who 
they belong to when they have mixed herds and so forth. So sealing is a very important thing that has been part of mankind's history all the way back uh, to virtually the beginning. <clears throat> in fact, just one of the readings in Mass for the last few days talked about uh, sealing right in the very first part of uh, mankind's history. Okay. So, have you got an idea of this idea of sealing? All right. But it's referring to not so much a physical uh, mark, but the whole idea of a human being accepting the teachings of Christ and being able to display that when necessary. After this, that is the sealing, I had a vision of a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, race, people, and tongue. There we go again. So you're not limited to a specific number. And they stood before the throne and before the Lamb wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation comes from our God who is seated on the throne and from the Lamb, which we've already pretty much covered. I won't go through any more of that. Let's go on to chapter 8. When he broke open the seventh seal, you see the overlapping here? Alright. We're talking about the, the chapter 8 is captioned here, the seven trumpets, but it starts out with when he opened the seventh seal, because we didn't cover that, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw that the seven angels who stood before God were given seven trumpets. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden incense, a golden censer. You all know what a censer is? Mm. When? Yes. You've all gone to uh, benediction, all right? And when the priest blesses the sacred host that's exposed with incense, that instrument is the censer. All right. And it is used, and particularly it used to be used quite often in a lot of ceremonies. Uh, it isn't used as much today as it used to be, but uh, in earlier days, uh, the use of incense and the censer was quite common. But that's what a censer is. Right. Now, it's not very large. So later on, is not going to be able to hold seven bowls either. You know? <clears throat> when he broke open the seventh seal, there was silence. Now, why silence? Remember the seven, and I think I listed what the seven meant last week. 
The seven refers to heavenly things. So the seventh seal and the silence refers to peace. Peace and quiet. Yes. In other words, we've been through such traumatic scenes before this time. So you would almost want a relief from all of that. And that is what heaven is. Peace. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. He was given a great quantity of incense to offer, along with the prayers of the Holy One. This is the same as we just mentioned a little while ago. It's not a repeat, but the same thing. Uh, the prayers uh, and are part of the burning incense being lifted up to God. Okay. <clears throat> so as there were peals of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning, an earthquake, and an earthquake. And that is all of the ideas of the seven seals being offered to the Father. That is the whole idea of really the God's plan of salvation being open to mankind and the completion of that as we are part of it becomes our peace, divine peace, and contentment. Okay. Any questions? The thing that I want you to see that this isn't a scary book, if you really understand it. But there's a lot of beauty in it. There's a lot of hope in it. Because what, we're, what the writer is, what God is really trying to tell us, is that Life on earth is scary in many ways. But the whole idea is if you are, if you have a close relationship with Jesus Christ, that life can be very peaceful and very full of contentment. That doesn't mean you're going to escape all the problems that come along as part of life but you have a better way of handling them in that at the end of the day you can sit with God in prayer and receive that peace and contentment that is promised here as part of heavenly things. Yes, yes, very much so. Yes, but you see, Judaism did not complete and fulfill the commitment that God made with the Jewish people. And therefore, the completeness, the fullness, actually came through Christianity. You see, and I think that's a good point that Jim has made. We have to understand that God made a covenant with mankind, beginning with Abraham. And he promised protection, which included peace and many other things, uh, including salvation. But it also required that the Jewish people 
be faithful to him. And unfortunately, they were not. Oh yes, they wanted to do everything that he said, but they're going to do it their way, not his. And that is not what he wants. He wants us to live a life <clears throat> that becomes a model and a good reflection of God to other people. We are the light to the other world, the other nations. Light to the world, not other world. Uh, and he tried to get the Jewish people to see that. And they didn't in time after time after time. For example, the whole idea of wandering in the desert for 40 years at the time of Moses was because they made the molten calf rather than depending and relying upon God himself to save them. When they got into Israel, back into Israel, the promised land afterwards, they were divided up in the northern kingdom uh, decided that they were going to start worshiping false gods and doing a lot of uh, sinful things. God caused or permitted the Assyrians to conquer them in the 8th century BC. They were carted off to Syria never to be heard of again. That doesn't mean that they were wiped out. It's just that they never got back into Israel. Again, a sign of God's protection. The same thing happened in the 6th century with the conquest of the Babylonians. It was because the people were unfaithful to God. And God again brought them along through the efforts of the prophet Ezekiel and to, to some degree Jeremiah and a little bit of Isaiah. But through those people, at least they were brought back into Israel. They were called the remnant to renew God's plan of salvation through Judaism. But time after time after time, they refused to continue to go along with the teachings of God through Moses. And God would bring them back because he needed them. And he loved them. He loved his own creation. And he kept allowing them to offend him, really. And he would renew them. But there was a limit. There was a time. And that time was the beginning of the life of Christ. He had to bring somebody back into the mankind in order to be a perfect sacrifice. Yes. Are you beginning to see what this message is? And I hope that you will all take it seriously for yourselves. Are you following that message today? What is your relationship with God? Now, just don't say, well, I go to church on Sunday. Isn't that good enough? No. He wants more. And the more you give of yourself, 
And I don't mean, when I say give, I don't necessarily mean money. I mean your whole attention, your life, your style. God's not going to make you do things that you don't want to do or you have are not equipped to do. He's going to use the talents and where you are at the time. But he's going to change your life. Forty years ago, I would never think I would be up here at this age uh, doing this. Uh, but once you give your life to Christ, changes will happen. But they will always be for your betterment. Uh, to make you a better person. And to make you happy. Uh, I've had a number of deaths. I was just telling somebody this this morning that I've had five deaths that I personally had to take care of in the last five years. But each time I see God's hand in it and I understand why. And I understand that he's working through me for the benefit of others. And that in itself is a great relief. Um, you know, even little things like the last three weeks, as you all know, I've had a pretty bad cold, which finally is getting better. Uh, but those kinds of things also uh, bring you closer to God in a way, because you have to depend on him for certain things. All right? There was a couple of times when I didn't know if I was going to actually be able to get here to give a class. Uh, but God has brought me through. And that's what we're looking for here, is how is he asking, how and why, and what is he asking of us, so that we can fulfill our little role in God's plan of salvation. As you go forward now, you're going to see a passage where it talks about the little scroll, and that's different from the scroll that we have just talked about. But the little scroll represents our portion in the God's overall plan of salvation. Because we each have a part to play. St. Paul tells us in uh, his letter to the Colossians, he says, I make up in my body what is lacking in the sacrifices of Jesus Christ. Now, when you think about it, see, what could be lacking in the sacrifices of Christ if he is all perfect and represents all of creation through God? What could be lacking? Well, what Paul is telling us in Colossians is that God has left the door open for each of us to have a little part to play in this plan of salvation. And the plan will get done whether we participate or not. But if we do not participate, if we do not fulfill our particular little role, then we will not participate in the joys of heaven afterwards. And that is frightening, if you think about it. And there are similar messages throughout Scripture. If you go to the story of the uh, wedding feast where the ten virgins were 
uh, invited, you know, you have five foolish and the five wise, okay? The whole idea of that story is in being prepared, being prepared for the end, all right? The wedding banquet at that time was a symbol of heaven, and when the bridegroom returned or arrived, whatever, uh, the door was locked, which is common in Jewish uh, wedding ceremonies at the time. Once everybody was gathered, then the door was locked and nobody was allowed in. So when the five foolish virgins returned uh, after going to the marketplace or whatever to get oil for their lamps, uh, the door was locked. And they, you know, rap on the door and try to get in, and the bridegroom says, go away, I don't know you. Which, of course, the wording is a little strange, but what he's really saying is, you didn't prepare, and you didn't let me know who you were beforehand, and therefore, why should I let you into heaven? The same idea is... We have to fulfill our role, just like those foolish virgins did not prepare for the possibility of their torches going out. Uh, so they were excluded from the wedding banquet, which is, again, representative of heaven. We have to fulfill our role in God's plan of salvation. And the only way you're going to know what that is, is through prayer. It's different for each person. It's not the same all the way around, no cookie cutters. It's different for each one of us. And it's involving our position or our station in life or family situation. It's not going to disturb any of those. It is going to include those. And life can be much more pleasant and peaceful if you work on it. It's time. Let's end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. We ask your blessing on us to help us understand little by little what your plan is for us. What our role is in your plan of salvation. Help us to know that. Help us to be willing to accept that. Grant us the grace and the strength to open our mind and our heart to hear what you have to say regarding salvation for us as individuals. It may not be what we would like, but we are open to what you want for us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.